Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Ken Hoimi. Ken is a senior fellow product security at Boston Scientific. He's been around the worlds of engineering and cybersecurity for a long time and held senior security and safety positions at both Honeywell and Boston Scientific. He's definitely one of the world's leading experts in device security. So we're really happy to have him here with us today. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Happy to be here. So maybe to start, you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into cybersecurity in the first place. Sure. It's been a long and winding road. Um, is actually one of those advices I give to young people is you never can plan 15, 20 years out where you're going to end up. You just have to see the opportunities that are there and prepare yourself to jump after them. I started out studying electrical engineering at the University of Minnesota. I'm a Minnesota kid from from growing up and went to the local university and uh, uh, ended up working toward a PhD where I never finished the dissertation. So I'm PhD, ABD, and uh, went to, to work for Honeywell at their research laboratory here in the Twin Cities, where my advisor was consulting, and I thought I'd finished the thesis, but he was working on a classified project in a vault, and I never hardly saw him. Turns out later, when it was declassified, he was working in computer security, though that wasn't what his research group did back at the University of Minnesota because of the classified separation of what, what happened, but... Uh, at Honeywell, a lot of my work was involved with uh, safety critical systems, really focusing a lot on commercial aviation. So, you know, designing fault tolerant uh, computer architectures to support closed loop control systems. Worked on the flight deck of the Boeing 777, integrating the flight deck of that. And then, after about 18 years there, I had coworkers that had left Honeywell and had ended up then at Guidant, which has been since purchased by Boston Scientific and started putting the recruit on to say the grass is greener, come on over to the medical device world. So I finally was convinced and uh, went, went in, to, it was 2002, jumping into medical devices, which I had no background in. And it was one of these tremendously accelerating, exhilarating times where I was learning, you know, after 18 years at Honeywell, I was mostly teaching others because I was the senior expert. Um, now I was the person that was absorbing like a sponge. And so I first started working on pacemakers and defibrillators and uh, fault-tolerant architectures for safety backups for uh, for those devices. And uh, then they started building a patient management system that uh, was going to remotely monitor patients while they slept at night in their bed. And I got recruited to, and ultimately was the lead system engineer for that, because I had worked on complex systems like Boeing aircraft. And so I had understood system engineering of, of complex systems. And so I was recruited on for that skill. 
And on that team, we had a cybersecurity group that, that worked alongside the systems team. We hired in some really good experts in that space. And as overseeing the systems design of this complex system, I started learning on the job from the cybersecurity people. And we had really good paranoid security people. Uh, one had been at Motorola dealing in the 90s with hacking of cell phones and how you block that. And we had people from the aerospace uh, world from, you know, from defense. And so we ended up in the 2003 to 2005 timeframe building a system for implantable defibrillators, home monitors, uh, programmers, and large-scale servers that was quite well secured end-to-end. And so that kind of was my on-the-job training. And then when the industry started breaking with Dr. Kevin Fu's research on hacking one of our competitors' defibrillators, I got more and more involved in the industry activities. So uh, in 2013, we started the a- Amy started the Vice Security Working Group, and Kevin and I were the first co-chairs of that, developing uh, Amy TIR 57, which is the guide for how you integrate security risk management into a safety risk management process. And really understanding that in medical devices, security is safety, and the regulators regulate safety, and therefore the security is well within their purview to regulate since patients could be harmed. So coming out of grad school in the 80s, would I have predicted that 20, 20, 30 years later, I'd be in medical device cybersecurity? Wouldn't have had a clue, but it was just all the, you know, taking the opportunities as they come and finding areas where there's need. Well, quite a journey. So I'm very, very curious, uh, if you can, without going into details, you can discuss, obviously, can you give us an overview of how you built the product security practice at Boston Scientific? Sure. Yeah, I had uh, been at a small R&D company. I had left Boston Scientific in 2013. The company decided to create a centralized product security group centered in corporate R&D. And so I was recruited back and was really the first time that Boston Scientific had a point, single point of contact to deal with uh, cybersecurity across the entire company. So when I came in, obviously, I found a company that had different skill sets when it came to cybersecurity and different business units. You know, as I mentioned, the, the cardiac group had been doing it since the early 2000s. We had other groups that were along the journey and some that were just getting into connectivity of devices and really didn't know how to manage it. And so my key thing was partnering with quality. A medical device company is ruled by their quality management system. It's what they're audited to. And the developers tend to look at if it's not in the quality system, we don't have to do it. You get dinged if you sometimes, if you don't, you do things that aren't documented in your quality system. So really recognize that the best club you have to drive cybersecurity in the organization is to get it into the quality management system. Thankfully, Boston Scientific, well, two things. In my few years absence, they had really uh, brought in a global quality system. Essentially, all of Boston Scientific uses a common quality system. So if you could get the hooks in that, you had good ways of of getting it uh, in across the company. But I also understood that you know, with the classic, I'm here from corporate and I'm here to help. You, you couldn't 
activate the club without having the training programs and things in there necessary to teach people what they need to do with these new processes. So it really was you know, convincing management to have sufficient staff to to do some training, to bring in outside training and do that. And then we started with the pre-market development and risk management and, and uh, penetration testing and those things at the upfront. And then we next stepped in and did a, a pretty thorough, what inside Boston Scientific is called the quality management program, which is kind of a cross company where you, you address a gap in the in, in that. And we, we subjected our post-market processes to that kind of a detailed gap analysis and developed uh, vulnerability management uh, requirements and uh, patching and things of that nature as as a the second step on on that journey. So now we're in that lather rinse repeat stage, which is you know every time you put new procedures in, you'll find some friction points, things that aren't that are hard to do, and so you try to tweak them and try to optimize them and get them to to work better. But uh, you know right now we're doing a gap analysis on the new uh, FDA pre market guidance and to understand what's in there that we may need to now bring in and augment our quality system to, to reflect. So Ken, that's really interesting. It's an interesting perspective um, that you have of the, the way that cybersecurity and the quality teams work together. And it's something we're hearing also from uh, you know, other experts in the market. So a few weeks ago, we have a, a new FDA pre-market guidance draft that was released on April 8th. And for those who are still learning it, uh, what do you see as the most important points that you think security teams should really pay attention to? Certainly. I think uh, one of the things the FDA did in this particular guidance is really try to anchor it in the 820 regulations. So there really there's a lot of trace things in here where I, I think they have felt pushback. It's, it's the classic thing that because a guidance document says at the top that this is non-binding, there's this feeling like the guidance document isn't something you have to follow. And I think the FDA's stance that I've heard repeated from many of them is that the guidance documents describe one way to meet the regulations. If you want to do it a different way, you may, but you have to make sure it still covers the regulations. And then you have to explain to the FDA what it is that you did. And therefore, it's going to take more time in in review if you're doing something that's unfamiliar. So it's a good way to get smoothly through the process is to actually do the guidance. And I think by hooking it into the regulations, they're trying to make it you know, kind of inescapable that cybersecurity and these activities are needed in order to meet the regulations related to safety and efficacy. So, uh, so I think that's one aspect is they're really trying to bind it to make it to stop people trying to slide out from uh, under what they intend. The other thing I think that was strongly brought out in this, I, I think throughout the document, there is a lot of descriptions of the kinds of documentation you need to produce to demonstrate that you actually did the activity. Some of them, they're asking for delivery on approval. Um, some of them are included in labeling. And so they're trying to force you to show your work. And I think in one area of that is the threat modeling, which has been a, a growing uh, drumbeat in the industry, you know, led by the FDA's expectations, um, their work with uh, MBIC and MITRE and Adam Shostak to develop the threat modeling playbook um, and do threat modeling workshops. They're really now talking about 
the kinds of diagrams that should be part of your documentation. A diagram showing multi-patient harm. How could that how could that occur and what controls are in place to stop a class break event that, that might harm multiple patients simultaneously by by sending information out to multiple devices at the same time. So I think that threat modeling has gone from just do threat modeling on that to and produce evidence that shows how you've explored particular areas. I think the security risk analysis that's expected is pretty uh, commensurate with the previous guidance in terms of that, but it's the linkage to the threat modeling that feeds that risk analysis to make sure that the risk analysis is complete. The, the, oh, then the other the other hook that I think is that is in there that people need to be aware of and thinking about is the FDA exerts their primary regulatory control by their approval process. They do have some leverage in post-market if things don't go. They certainly can get uh, recalls done, 483 letters, but those are more messy processes. So the expectation of a software bill of materials in the pre-market and the expectation of a vulnerability management plan demonstrated as part of your submission pre-market really are the evidence that you are equipped to start monitoring your systems for vulnerabilities as they occur once fielded. So it's kind of like if you don't have a management plan in place, you don't know what's in your device, there's just no way you're going to be able to manage it securely in the post-market world. So that's their pre-market levers to make sure that they're convinced you're prepared to do what's necessary once the device is fielded to keep it uh, up-to-date patched. That's very interesting. In fact, um, we we actually were looking through the requirements and uh, we were quite happy to see that in our current uh, activities at Cybellum that we we already fulfill a bunch of them, and it also gave us uh, ideas for the roadmap going forward. And and I think you know, and I've discussed this with other colleagues in other companies, and they they were also waiting for this because we kind of use this you know to help us really in our development also. Uh, if we see that you know there's something that maybe we're not 100% um, fulfilling. You know, or enabling our customers to fulfill, then you know we'll go out and it, it will actually help us uh, in in our development roadmap. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think it's a it sounds like a, a a huge step forward in in a lot of ways, both in terms of connecting it to the use cases as as you mentioned, uh, Ken, but also in terms of how they put pre market uh, levers for for post market. So there is thinking around that, which is I think another step forward. So I'm curious to to change the subject actually a little bit. Uh, something very very interesting that I think you have an interesting perspective on. Many product security teams today mention the fact that there is you know friction sometimes between developers and security. Uh, it's nothing new. It happens also in IT, but it is a big challenge. Uh, and and I'm curious. First of all, would you agree? And, and second, how do you think that that issue should be solved? So, yes, I, I, I think it is an issue, and I think it can be sourced from many potential backgrounds. Security people might come into a device team and tell them that their baby is ugly, and nobody likes to, to hear that because they're you know, pointing out flaws. And so I think there's a there's a friction because of domain expertise and this you know, feeling like it's a whole new area that a, that a software developer may need to know that that they don't, which you know puts them at a at a disadvantage. But on the other hand, you know, the good ones recognize that learning this is a very good uh, skill to have going forward. So 
hopefully they grab onto it. I think a lot of other tension comes from you know project management because the security processes introduce schedule uncertainty. You know, if you do a penetration test at the end and they find a bunch of of low-hanging fruit that needs to be fixed or, or heaven forbid, find a fundamental architectural flaw that requires some significant redesign activity, it can, you know, shift out and, and management at, at, at companies are measured by meeting deliverables and getting things into the market. That's when revenue starts. So I think there's an inherent friction related to the schedule time it takes to do the security activities and getting them to what's traditionally, you know, called shift left, which is getting them to start thinking about it at the concept phase. So I think how to reduce that is to, you know, as it gets built into the quality system and the project managers recognize that these activities are needed, ensuring they get staffed. That's hard because cybersecurity people that understand embedded systems are rare commodities. And so, you know, I've encouraged internally to identify the good people that have the capabilities and train them and you know, recognize that that does take some time, but you can't uh, just open recs and, and wait and not get anybody and not do the activity. So it's, it's really convincing that the, the, the individual business unit teams that are working on a new device that a cybersecurity expert, a cybersecurity architect should be on that team as, as part of that activity. That's great. Do do you see that, that the security teams, get it that they you know they get the mindset that they they think okay i'm, I'm making a now a new change I'm, I'm coming out with a new version i really need to check whether i might be introducing vulnerabilities again it varies i find it's unfortunately personality driven you know you have you'll have teams that get it but one of our new teams in an area that hadn't traditionally wrestled with uh, security ended up hiring in a security architect that was really top-notch because the director of that project understood what the landscape was and how important it was going to be. So, you know, because that individual got it, he made sure this, the activities were staffed. So I think it's kind of getting to the people at that middle management level and senior management to make sure they understand the importance of this. And, you know, with the messages we're getting from the FDA through this, that this is existential to to getting your device approved you know it's like we uh, we have an internal product security summit that we've hold, held annually since i i rejoined in in 2016 and uh last fall we had keynoted with dr kevin Fu, who's currently based at the fda and one of his slides was very a simple statement is we have rejected 510k and pma submissions due to cybersecurity weaknesses only so you're just kind of sending the message that, yes, if you don't do a good enough job, it's, you could get rejected just because you don't have your cybersecurity right. And so that message got broadly circulated. Make sure everyone hears that. That's, it's real. So somebody said to me once that maybe one of the reasons why, in medic, especially in the medical device industry, security is taken as a, it's a necessity but but maybe um, because there hasn't been, let's say, a major published, you know, in the papers, you know, attack that has affected a lot of people at once, you know, like like like, like a pipeline, right? Where where a pipeline, a gas pipeline, has been shut down in the in the oil industry by by hackers. So you haven't had something like this, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it hasn't yet 
you know, been like really right in the front and center that it has to be done. You know what I mean? And, and while some people get it, maybe it's still not, you know, in the mindset a hundred percent because of that. I don't know what you think about that. It's a, uh, yeah, I mean, I've certainly heard those kinds of discussions and certainly we've had, um, situations where healthcare systems have been subject to, to, you know, to, uh, attack. Again, I don't think we've seen any evidence where a, a malware has been customized to explicitly attack a medical device. Most of the medical device uh, ransomware things that have happened have been because they use common infrastructure with things like, you know, if you're, if you're based on Windows and the Eternal Blue exploit was would attack Windows and they would get caught up as a you know in, as a drive-by malware rather than it specifically targeted. We have seen at least an evidence. While I, I think they've now not attributed this death to specifically this malware, but there was a hospital in Germany where a, a, a patient was in an ambulance to the hospital and they got caught in ransomware and the patient had to be sent to another hospital because they didn't have the equipment, the ability to, to treat them there, and the patient died on the way to the second hospital. So. It's an indirect indication of how availability is really important in healthcare. And while healthcare as an industry at the hospital level has been heavily focused on confidentiality and privacy due to you know, HIPAA regulations, GDPR regulations, creating financial risk for these organizations related to data protection, you know, we're more and more understanding that the integrity and availability are the key aspects of ensuring that a medical device is safe when it's touching a patient or you know, or diagnosing a patient. So I, whether or not we need a targeted attack against them to really demonstrate it, you know, the regulators get it. <laughs> they, they watch this. And to a certain extent, because we're in a regulated industry, there's those pressures there. Now, the interesting thing is you start thinking about digital health, you start thinking about other players getting in there where they may not have a safety background. Um, they may be skirting whether or not they are, they become in the regulated space. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds and whether or not those devices have been secured appropriately. Great. Thank you. Right. So, so you, you've worked in the automotive, the aerospace, medical device industries, and you, you have a very interesting perspective. So what are some of the overlaps and differences that you see with regards to product security uh, between these industries? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think all of the industries back in the 80s and 90s weren't thinking about cybersecurity. Um, so much of the operational technology that is fondly referred to as cyber physical systems, where you know you have a computer system interacting with the physical world. And so many of those systems were self-contained initially. You know, power plants were not necessarily hooked to the internet. And I think you've seen individual sectors start the journey at different times in, you know, for different reasons. So I think the question always is, how do you safely isolate the systems that are cyber-physical that, you know, as they say, could cause kinetic effects from the efficiencies you get by interconnecting the uh, IT systems to be able to manage it. And, you know, I know within the aviation world, there were uh, early radio communications that didn't have security in their links. 
they didn't directly fly the airplane. There was there was it was there was no direct connection to them. But as they start going into more satellite links and other things, there there is certainly a uh, a need to ensure that the control aspects of the aircraft and the cabin entertainment system, which might have efficiencies by sharing data links to the ground, that they are properly isolated. Now, the aviation world is is steeped in separation um, technology and thoughts more so than the healthcare world is in terms of you know, the history of the kinds of architectures that are there, that are there, though the healthcare is getting there. So industrial controls developed uh, through their uh, instrumentation society uh, association, uh, the 6443 series, which is ahead of where the healthcare is. I know the FDA recognizes a couple of those standards as, as uh, areas, but you know, I think it's ultimately kind of driven by researchers starting to identify weaknesses that raise the attention of particularly in those those portions of them where there's a regulator involved that can actually you know, provide leverage to ensure that those kind of things get improved. But um, there's a lot of things we can share back and forth because there's a lot more similarities than than differences in in the various operational technologies. I think it's a very important message because sometimes product security teams tend to be you know, very much focused on their own industry, rightfully so. But I think for someone like you to say that, that means a lot. Um, so here's a question we ask uh, most of our guests, and I'm, I'm really curious to hear your answer. Uh, what's the most amazing or unbelievable moment you had uh, in the cybersecurity world? So I, you know, I appreciate having the the, uh, the questions ahead of time, so I can mold this one because this was one. one. <laughs> but I, I and I'm going to kind of take it in a different direction. It, it, it is cybersecurity related. It's also very personal. Um, that first defibrillator that I worked on with remote patient management, where we put long range radios in and secured it. Uh, my brother in law had uh, cardiomyopathy, viral cardiomyopathy, and ended up needing that defibrillator. So I had a family member with that in him and the patient management system alongside his bed. And um, and then later, as I mentioned, that I was working on fault-tolerant architectures for pacemaker defibrillators for backup. And my mother-in-law, who's 94, has a pacemaker in her that is remotely monitored. And I have four patents on on the technology that's, that's helping keeping her alive. So I think the realization that when you work in this industry, you will either personally or know people who are using these devices. And when I worked on the Boeing 777, my kids were very young. And I promised myself that I would never let something escape my attention that would make me want to discourage my kids from flying on the Boeing 777. Um, My daughter, a few years ago, had a friend working in Shanghai. And so she flew pretty much over the pole from the U.S. to Shanghai in a Boeing 777. And, you know, that's that's personal. And the same thing in the medical device world. It's like you just, so I feel good knowing that I am confident in the security of the devices that my family members and other people I know who have family members have inside them. So I think, I think that's how I would say is it's it's not amazing in any one of this event happened as much as just you know you gotta take you gotta take satisfaction in the work you do yeah you know it's interesting Thank you. we've uh, it's interesting we've actually heard stories like that uh from other people in the industry 
either they came into the industry because they wanted to help to support medical devices because of loved ones, or they actually um, influenced the medical devices in order to help loved ones once they were already in the industry. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to hear. Yeah, and I, I think it's you know, it, one of my other sometimes pet peeves is this implication that uh, medical device companies are out for the money and are in, interested in, in shirking. And it has advice. Certainly there can be uh, people with poor integrity in any industry in that. But I have found in general that the, we all, as engineers in this, take it personally. We, we think about it. Uh, yeah, certainly I view the management that I work for as highly aligned and being you know high integrity and, and really truly focusing and caring about how patients, you know, it's, it's, it, this, there's a certain mission to healthcare. So I'll share with you that um, my father died quite young from uh, heart issues. And I have other family members that suffer from heart issues. And my oldest son, uh, Shlomi knows about this. <laughs> He's a biomedical engineer working on the next generation of heart valves and uh, very much hits home. And um, it, it's oh, uh, yes. incredible to watch. And, and so, yeah, I, I get it. And he's working for Edwards and, um, it, it's very much, uh, <laughs> in my own, in my own personal, you know, circle, I see it. So I guess, uh, the last question I have for today, looking ahead to 2022, you know, going forward in the year, we're already, you know, almost halfway there. Do you have any practical tips for product and device security teams for, you know, 2022 and looking forward? Yeah, I think, you know, in, in the near term, I think the two things that product security teams should be focusing on is they need to get a handle about how they are going to produce SBOMs for their organization based on how they do software builds or, or that nature. It's, it is the key to not only device approval, as we talked about, but it is really the key used for managing devices once they're fielded. You can't protect what you don't know you have. And uh, so I think understanding from an organization and pulling the tooling together they need so they're producing accurate, effective SBOMs is a very short-term need. A mid-term need to short-term is train on threat modeling, start practicing threat modeling. Doing, you know, I know we've, we've started, we did some broad training at, at Boston Scientific, and we now have a monthly work group of the people working on threat models across the company where each one takes a turn to bring in what they've been working on and, and start sharing learnings across there and, and create kind of a community of practice of people that are conducting threat modeling activities. Because again, you know, it's security risk analysis is only as good as the imagination of the people brainstorming the possibilities. Threat modeling gives you a systematic method to try to explore the space so that you can be convinced that you've been thorough and you can demonstrate it to others. So I think you know, if if they don't have any other bandwidth for things, you know, it's like step up a a, a step in S bomb and threat modeling. Excellent, thank you. Thank you, excellent, Ken. I I want to to thank you uh, very very much for this. I think it's it's been educational and and inspiring at the same time. And it's always great to hear uh, such uh, stories like uh, like the ones you have. It makes us makes us feel proud and in what uh, you know the industry is doing and what we have uh, maybe a small part in doing so 
we we really thank you and and wish you all the best and and keep on um, you know uh, making a, such a huge contribution to this uh, important industry I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you Dave it's been great thank you very much left to our own devices is brought to you by cybellum to learn more visit cybellum.com you